5. Realism One of the most common errors with regard to Indians has been the assumption that their thinking had certain premises common to modern man, i.e. ideas of humanitarianism, and of man or mankind as a unit. Indians had names usually for other tribes, but they called themselves, quote, the people, unquote. Many groups had only a minimal regard even for the tribe. They wandered as small bands, gathering food, moving from place to place in search of edible items, and numbered sometimes 15 or 20 people. For an entire tribe of a few hundred or more to move as a unit would have exhausted the hunting, fishing, and food-gathering possibilities in any area. The older Indians I knew, Paiute and Shoshone, had neither interest in nor love of man in general. Survival was basic, and the need to endure harsh circumstances made men unsentimental and non-idealistic. The modern perspective warps judgment. Men will speak of their concern for and love of mankind, but despise their neighbor, their employer, their employee, or sometimes their husband or their wife. Their professed love of mankind is a humanistic religious faith. Their day-by-day living makes it obvious that they dislike or even hate many people. It is easier to love mankind in general than to love a person who causes us serious problems. I once encountered a churchwoman who said that she immediately distrusted any new pastor who spoke about his love for the flock. She knew how many hypocrites and sinners there are in any congregation, and she thought anyone who spoke of loving the flock instead of loving the Lord is either a hypocrite or a fool. While younger Indians, and especially Indian rabble-rousers, who knew how to appeal to sentimental whites, might talk about mankind, such thinking was alien to the elderly Indians. This non-sentimental and localized vision often gave a hard and healthy edge to their thinking. The three elders of the Western Shoshone Mission were Guy Manning, Shoshone, Tom Primo, Shoshone, and Louis Dave, Paiute men of superior intelligence. Guy Manning remains in my memory as one of the finest men I have known. One man, a Presbyterian missions officer who met with our session, told me a few years later that ours was the finest church session he had ever met with, and virtually all his associations had been with white urban churches. It was the Indians' hard realism, linked to a strong Christian faith, which had impressed him. I can best illustrate this by citing one of my very first meetings with them. I asked about the religious character of the Indians on the reservation, about 900 people. A few, they said, adhere to the old belief in the wolf spirit, and most have some of the old superstitions and practices, but the essential faith of all, save themselves and the other Christians, was in the whiskey religion. I laughed when they said that. They laughed too, but then they told me earnestly that it was also very true, and why it was true. A man's religion is what he relies on in trouble and also in a time of happiness, for healing and relief. Religion is what a man cannot live without. That is what whiskey is to most Indians. And, they added, to some white men also. Paul Tillich very aptly described religion as ultimate concern. In a variation of this idea, these elders define religion as ultimate need, as what a man in the crises as well as the joys of life must have to live. I learned that the term whiskey religion was common among many of the older men, including the alcoholics. It was a powerful recognition of the importance of liquor and illustrative of their realism. Such clarity of thought was lacking among the younger generations, whose minds had been blurred by statist education. I was greatly impressed by the thinking behind the term whiskey religion. On a few occasions, I have used the term with various audiences, but the level of comprehension has not been high. Apart from being a clever expression, its implications don't easily register. 
Most people, and many churches, have their counterpart to whiskey religion, something that, whatever their formal professions of faith, whether humanism or Christianity, represents that thing without which they cannot live. Much could be said about the Indians that would show them in a bad light, yet only be somewhat accurate. Alcoholism has been prevalent, adultery commonplace, and so on. The various Indian tribes represent broken cultures. The hold their old culture has is real, but its vitality is gone. More than any tribal heritage, whiskey religion commands them. The hard realism of the phrase, quote, whiskey religion, unquote, is very important to me. The older Indians have been romanticized, but they were not a romantic people. Louis Dave, for example, classically Indian in appearance, could still describe the old life vividly from personal experience. As a boy, he had been a member of one of the still independent Paiute bands. He could tell me of his use of a bow and arrow, where he had camped and hunted, and so on. Shortly after World War II, I believe it was, he became a commissioner, or elder delegate, to the Presbyterian General Assembly in the East. He chose to fly there, rather than to take a train, and his ascent above the clouds was a very great delight to him. Other older Indians, Christian and non-Christian, listened to his accounts of the journey with equal delight. Flying was one of the triumphs of the white man. A few Indians had been on the flight crews in World War II and done well. Without ceasing to be Indians, they had become a part of the wider world. There was one old Paiute whose late father, Chief Patacap, had led Paiute resistance in southwestern Oregon. The son spoke no English. Young Indian rights advocates, of whom there were very few at Owyhee and others, called this man, quote, Chief Patacap, unquote, which other old Paiute men resented. Patacap had gone to Washington, D.C. to testify before a congressional panel through a translator, clothed in Plains Indian garb. As such, he was a very dramatic figure, with his intense eyes and passionate Paiute oratory. Patacap's senior contemporaries regarded him as a pathetic tool, and a man not altogether in his right mind. Patacap talked to me as a potential ally because of my dark hair, eyes and complexion, and my foreignness. The other old Indians often concluded their slurs about Patacap's mentality with the statement, quote, he doesn't understand much English, unquote. I thought at first that this was a case of stating the obvious until it was explained to me. Entrance into the real world of the 20th century required knowing English. Otherwise, intellectually, a man was still going around shivering in moccasins and a loincloth. This was for them a common image for stupidity in an Indian of this day. They felt a kindly pity for old Patacap. None of these men was other than content with being an Indian, but they disliked the idea that being an Indian meant being a fool. The men whom they ridiculed as foolish were the younger men who were using Patacap. After all, they spoke English, so what was their excuse for being fools? The realism of the older Indians was a notable quality. Both whites and Indians need it today.